so let's talk about art right here on the Overnightscape Central. Yeah, I'm PQ Ribber. Once again, here for your weekly dose of Ansug group goodness. Uh, and, 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 and it is the goodest goodness that there ever was. I, I am almost sure of that. This week, this week, uh, we are talking about art uh, in all its forms and uh, any art. And uh, we've got Dave in Kentucky and Frank Edward Nora here to join us this time around. And, and this, this is going to be good when Dave in Kentucky is in the house. Uh, it, I know. This is going to get interesting because he, he he sees things in a very cool way that uh, I admire very much. So uh, without further ado, I mean, I could talk about art and what is and isn't art and the meaning and all that uh, endlessly almost. But uh, let's uh, kick things off and not let me open it up with the driveline. Uh, just to, just to get the momentum kicking here for another incredible example of the show you could have would have and should have been on and i'll tell you at the end how you can participate in the next overnight scape central and the topic and all that but uh yeah let's get things going with this one here and let's talk about art dave in kentucky thanks pq let's talk about art um this was a very fortuitous topic um for me because I have just recently gone back and selected new artwork for all of my sermons episodes. And uh, I checked with Frank to make sure this was kosher. What what prompted this was looking through uh, the book, The Onsug, um, a radio station inside a book, I believe is the title, full title. But, uh, you know, I noticed that my artwork was sorely lacking because I had been using the same show art for every episode of this. So I decided that when I heard that Frank was working on the second edition, I decided I'd go back and, and put new show art with this so that I could have a, a better section in the book. <laughs> so, uh, you know, I have recently become familiar with some uh, artsy types, you know, uh, of the far past because I wanted to select artwork that was in the public domain. Um, and what I intend to do in this segment is to uh, go uh, backward in time <laughs> with the sermons episodes and talk a little bit about the show art and the show artists. <clears throat> so, the way I have done that is um, gone to the Onsug, onsug.com, and I have uh, uh, scrolled down to the search box, which is pretty far down because you have to get past all of the categories, all of the uh, um, names, you know, like uh, PQ and Frank and Dave and Shambles and um, Chad and, and all those people, plus all the months, the many, many months that have happened since the uh, initial days of the uh, Overnightscape Underground. Uh, but once you get down to the search box, just type in sermons. Now, don't do it on the on the uh, window or the or the tab that you're listening to me on, or you'll just 
you know, kill this. <laughs> uh, you may want to do that, but uh, I hope you don't want to kill me by the time it's done. But but go down to the search box in another tab or another window and type sermons and uh, and hit enter. And it should bring these uh, um, shows up, uh, sermons. The most recent one is number 23. That should be at the top. And then when you scroll down, you'll see number 22, number 21, and so on. <clears throat> so without further ado, first thing you should see is sermons number 23. Uh, the, the show title is Ecological Dominoes, but that has very little to do with the artwork that was selected. The artwork that, that I selected for this was... Uh, Moses and Aaron Speak to the People, which was done around 1900 uh, by James Tissot, who uh, was a Frenchman. Uh, he changed his name to James, possibly because he met uh, James McNeil, whatever his name was, Whistler, who was famous for painting his mother and uh, became one of his friends. And um, he, he liked all things... English, well, Whistler was an American, so I don't know. He, he was he was an Anglophile, and he didn't like, you know, his French name, uh, Jacques, or Jacques-Joseph. <laughs> uh, Jacques Tissot was his uh, first name, uh, but he decided to, he'd rather go by James Tissot, so that's what he did. Now, this, uh, this incident that he depicts in this painting is when um, um, Moses has received instructions from the uh, um, burning bush, or I think he, he received instructions from um, a hologram uh, that was projected into the burning bush. And he was told to um, tell the people that... Um, they were the chosen people, and they were going to be led out of slavery um, by the Yahwehlian gods. <laughs> uh, well, actually, they were going to be led out by Moses uh, under the instruction of the Yahwehlian gods who spoke to him in, uh, through a hologram in the uh, burning bush. But uh, they teamed him up with um, his brother, older brother, older better speaking brother Aaron and you see them both on stage here in the uh, uh, arena of the Israelite slaves <laughs> you know it's it's odd you know if they're slaves why do they why do they have uh, this uh, auditorium you know but anyway they're up on stage and all the men are down in the uh, at floor level by the way if you want to um enlarge this so you can see it a little better. All you got to do is click on the show art and it brings up a, a, a larger um, larger image. And then you can, when you're done with it, you can just hit the back arrow, the back button, and uh, it'll take you back to where you were. So you see all the men down front in the VIP section and all the women are up in the balcony it kind of reminds me of that scene in To Kill a Mockingbird when the trial is going on and uh, 
and and the kids, uh, Jim and Scout and uh, uh, Dill, they go up um, up into the into the balcony to watch because they can't see anything down low. When they go up into the balcony, you know they're up in the in the in the colored section. All all the uh, the black people are there, and they kind of settle down by the uh, black minister that they know to to watch what's going on. But anyway, so. Uh, this 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 painting, it has kind of an odd look to it. The, the colors are kind of subdued, and I believe the reason for this is that it's not done in oils. It's done um, in something called um, gouache, which is a kind of an opaque watercolor uh, mixed in some sort of... Uh, thickening type medium I guess and he, he instead of painting on canvas he painted on wood and he did this very late in life after he uh, uh, had had a long career already uh, in painting um, he kind of uh, had a revival in his later years of, uh, of his uh, original Catholic faith and he spent some years from about the mid-1880s, I think, uh, up until 1890 or so, uh, doing scenes from the New Testament, you know, scenes involving Jesus and so on. But then uh, in his very latest years, starting, um, well, you may notice the show art, it says, is, is it's dated 1896 to 1902, and that doesn't mean that it took him that long to paint that one painting. Uh, that just means, and, and you'll see this several more times when we come to other of his artwork, that um, they know he did all of these between 1896 and 1902, and he died in 1902. So, you know, we are safely in the public domain here. Well, I better move on. The next one you see is uh, Sermons 22, and it uh, it's not not a painting. It's a um, a still from the uh, silent version of Cecil B. DeMille's The Ten Commandments that he did in the uh, early 20s. And I'll, since we're talking about art, I'm going to just kind of skip by that. And the next one is, well, I suppose, you know, Cecil B. DeVille's movies could be considered art, but, you know, I don't think that's what was intended for the topic. So let's go on to Sermons 21, uh, which is uh, Pharaoh's Daughter Finds Baby Moses, which was done in 1886 by Edwin Long. Edwin Long. I've got... I've got I've got tabs here with the uh, Wikipedia pages for these artists <clears throat> so that I don't have to stop and actually key their names in to look them up. And I use Wikipedia because, you know, obviously it is, it are, it is our most reliable source. <laughs> and I use Wikipedia. I hope, you're, I hope you know I'm being sarcastic there. I use Wikipedia because, you know, you're always going to find an article about, well, not always, but you're almost always going to find an article about anybody that you'd care to look up on Wikipedia. Uh, so for instance, Edwin Long, it says, was a 
a British genre, history, biblical, and portrait painter. Uh, uh, oh, yeah, down down here in his article even has has this this same painting. Well, they call it the Finding of Moses here. Hmm. Okay. Well, I I suppose you know they 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 don't they don't paint the title of the, of the painting on the painting itself. So I suppose they could be known by multiple names, and this one certainly is. This this depicts when Moses was uh, found among the bulrushes when Pharaoh's daughter and her entourage of uh, slave women, I suppose, uh, go down to bathe, and uh, they're all kind of brown. She's she's pretty much all white, although she is brunette. So I suppose this is due to the artist being pretty white, uh, but uh, they have rescued um, little Moses from among the bulrushes, and, and you can see Behind behind the reeds there, you can see his sister watching to see what happens. He ends up being being raised by uh, by the pharaoh's daughter. Let's see. Then if we go on to the next one, sermons number number twenty, the episode title is "The Garden of Eden Reconsidered." This is the episode where I go back. This is actually the episode where I started using show art originally, rather than using uh, just a standard show art, kind of like Frank does with um, old tape land. Um, I know he changes it up from time to time, but they're very similar. They might use some different colors or something. And uh, he also does the same sort of thing with the exit ramp. But... Uh, this one, I selected this one because it's, it tells a story. Uh, this, this is about the, uh, the scene where God, well, it's called the rebuke of Adam and Eve. Um, and this is, uh, by Domenico Zampieri, who is, uh, also known as Domenicino. Let's see what it says about him. Domenico Zampieri. 1581 to 1641, known by the diminutive Domenicino after his shortness. So I guess Domenicino means little Domenico or something. He was an Italian Baroque painter of the Bolognese school of painters. But anyway, it depicts the scene after um, Adam and Eve have uh, eaten of the fruit of the uh, tree of knowledge of good and evil. And um, you can see God surrounded by these, looks like young kids in partially, partial undress. <laughs> I don't know, that makes God seem kind of pervy. But anyway, God's shaking his finger at, at Adam saying, you shouldn't have done this. I know you did it because I can see those stupid little uh, aprons you've got on trying to cover your genitalia and uh, Adam is Adam is, is uh, gesturing toward Eve and said well she made me do it and Eve is pointing down at the snake you can just barely see it 
maybe if you uh, yeah if you enlarge it a little bit you can see it but Eve is saying no it's the snake's fault and over on the right the the, the lamb and the lion are they've been lying down together but now the lion is kind of looking like hmm that looks tasty but anyway this 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 uh, this painting is is featured prominently in a an article that I found called Five Ridiculous Representations of Adam and Eve in Art of History. <laughs> this is actually one of the first things that attracted me to it. But since I've been looking at this stuff, you know, I'm getting getting uh, more and more uh, enamored of it. I suppose you'd say. Well, let's move on. Back out of that and go down the page. Now we're down to Sermons 19. And this this show art is, uh, you may recognize the style. It's by James Tissot um, that we talked about earlier. It's called Jacob's Body is Taken to Canaan. You know, Jacob died in Egypt, but he um, uh requested that he be taken back to Canaan to be buried. And uh, they they gave him a, a fancy send-off, looks like. There's the funeral procession. Uh, James Tussaud, he, um, he, he actually spent some years in the Middle East uh, getting, getting a feel for what things looked like around there. Let's see, let's go on. The next one is number 18, and the show art is called Joseph Recognized by His Brothers, done in 1863 by Léon-Pierre-Aubin-Bourgeois. <laughs> uh, I think he might be French. So let's see what it says about him. Uh, actually, this is one where there was not a Wikipedia article. So the the exception that proves the rule, as they say, which is fuck. I mean, which is stupid because exceptions don't prove rules. Um, <laughs> exceptions disprove rules. Um, we've been talking about this a little bit, you know, on the exit ramp and uh, um, and so on. Well, I, I think mostly I talked about it in, in an email that I sent to Frank. Uh, exceptions disprove the rule. You know, it's, it's, a, it's the principle of falsification. We we're talking about scientific, scientific theories. If you have a theory that predicts something that uh, is contradicted by, by the outcome of, of your experiment or whatever, that falsifies the theory, or that version of the theory, at least. But anyway, I don't want to get too far off on that. Uh, Léon-Pierre Urbain-Bourgeois, French painter, printmaker, and lithographer, 1842 to 1911. And that's, uh, it has a little more information about him, but obviously he wasn't a very important figure or he would have had a Wikipedia article. Now let me let me uh, talk a little bit about this. This is Joseph recognized by his brothers. Joseph, remember, well you may not remember, but Joseph was sold into uh, slavery by his brothers. 
he had ten half-brothers and one full-brother. Um, and, and, and the one full-brother is the one that he's hugging there, is, the, is his little, little younger brother. Um, but he, well, after he was sold in, into slavery, um, he did well for himself and actually became uh, an official uh, uh, pharaoh's second-in-command, <laughs> in effect. And the, uh, there was a famine in the land and his brothers came looking for food. They didn't recognize him and he didn't, he didn't, uh, uh, disabuse them of their non-recognition. They had come, the older brothers had come to get the food. Then they'd left his, his little brother at home and he played a little game with them and, and, and caused them to have to go back and get him and bring him because he wanted to, he wanted to see him. He didn't let them know that, but that's why he did it. But his name was uh, Benjamin. So here we see Joseph and, and Benjamin embracing and the uh, nine or ten half-brothers. I don't want to fool with trying to count them, but there's there were actually ten of them. So, you know, we got Joseph and Benjamin or Yusuf and Benjamin. We anglicize a lot of these names. They're embracing. Okay, now we go on to the next one. Sermons number 17. The silver goblet is found in Benjamin's sack. Yeah, that's, that's one of the tricks that he played on him. He, <clears throat> he sent him home with corn, which, you know, corn, the word corn in, in the, uh, um, King James Version can reference any kind of grain, really. Um, just as cattle can can uh, represent any kind of livestock. But he uh, he put his own silver goblet in 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 one of the sacks of corn, and uh, and then had had his uh, minions pursue them after they left and searched their sacks, and they found it in, in Benjamin's sack. And then they had to come back and face the music. Let's see. Alexander Ivanov. I don't think he's French. <laughs> Let's see what it says about him. Alexander Andreevich Ivanov was a Russian painter. <laughs> Go figure. Who adhered to the waning tradition of neoclassicism but found little sympathy with his contemporaries. So he was using an older style that they did not appreciate. I appreciate these older styles. You know, I think, you know, representational art speaks to me more than non-representational. I know, Hitler thought the same thing. I must be a fascist. Uh, old Uncle Joe thinks I'm a fascist, I guess. Semi-fascist, anyway. Oh, yeah, we're all a bunch of semi-fascists with demitasses on a hemisphere in the stratosphere. Oh, man. Yep, this is... If you actually... Well, let's, let's not go into the uh, definition of fascist, which basically means person who doesn't agree with me. Uh... <laughs> Oh boy! Not that, that, that 
so you're talking about the representational art. Now, I, I must, because I'm a sucker for illustration, but I, 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 I appreciate it all. I see representational art as more of a craft, being able to visualize, whereas the abstracts, that's a whole other planet. I mean, like surrealism and abstract and semi-abstract and distortions. That is also art and artistic. Uh, and neither, I mean, really, if you want to have practical value in uh, the current commercial world, uh, and a regular paycheck you want to be able to be very representational and somebody tells you they want a horse and a house and a car and a dog you can just whip that stuff off because you have studied and you have reference pieces and you can do that uh, and I envy people who can look at something and then look at a piece of paper and see that person or object in the paper and be able to represent it there uh that i do artistic things but uh realistic uh representations are not in my wheelhouse or palette so to speak as an artiste uh, in fact all the art i do i sort of do quote unquote in a non-textbook style or as uh, any instructor or pedantic instructor especially would say uh mr ribber you're doing that wrong and yeah uh, you betcha i am uh what can i tell you oh and these sermons you do i am learning more i mean i went to hebrew school i've read the bible uh but this gives me so much more meat to it because reading the bible itself without if you're not reading it with a commentary number one you're just running words through your head basically as far as i can tell or you're interpreting it yourself which you're welcome to do but i don't think it coheres very well that way i've tried that uh i found myself just like i was looking at words at a certain point and it wasn't even going creating thoughts it was just these chains of words going have you ever read something and it just turns into chains of words that uh, stop representing anything and it's just words sitting there Ugh, i hate when that happens uh it's, it's like uh my attempts to read uh, remembrance of things past or maybe even gravity's rainbow uh, at a certain point the language just became its own language and i was lost uh but uh, that, and the cover art thing oh boy it, it, it at times i feel it would be great if i could just do a cover and it's one less thing i have to think about when i produce a program but i can't do it i as soon as i started d changing out covers uh the, the idea of sticking with one image even if i change the color it, it just seems like i'm cheating or something and what's even worse i mean i am cheating uh most of the images that i put for uh, these overnightscape centrals and when i'm doing the quake reversal satellites have no absolutely no connection 
whatsoever to the title of the show or the content of the show. They're just these images that I felt would work for what reason, Lord only knows. But uh, yeah, that's that that's the mind of uh, a a true faux artist. I don't know. Uh, for years, I have considered myself a dabbler. Uh, it's really hard for me to think of myself as a true artist somehow. You know, like somebody like Q, the artist shaman. Now, there is a man I could say is an artist and just I, not quibble about it. With me, there's, there's, I, I still see room for quibbling, for sure. Well, let's go on. Ah, this looks like a hot one. Number 16. Uh, Joseph and Potiphar's Wife by Jean-Baptiste Nattier. This is when uh, Potiphar was Joseph's employer before he moved up in the world and became uh, Pharaoh's second-in-command. And uh, Potiphar's wife had the hots for Joseph. <laughs> and she kept, you know, telling him, here, come lie with me. And uh, and he would, uh, you know, throw his hand over. I don't know if he really did that. But, but it's like uh, a very, very melodramatic. You know, he's he's resisting her. She's got a hold of his, uh, uh, what, what would you call that? shawl, tunic, I don't know. So he, when he left, you know, she pulled that off of him and then she used it as evidence against him, to, you know, that, and, uh, but, you know, like they say, hell hath no fury. But um, who did, the, oh, Jean-Baptiste Nattier. Yeah, I think he was kind of pervy. Let's see uh, what it says about him. It was a French history painter. Now, a history painter, that's an odd term I'm not familiar with. It's a genre of painting, or a genre in painting, defined by its subject matter rather than any artistic style or specific period. Huh. Well, that doesn't seem very helpful for art appreciation. History paintings depict a moment in a narrative story rather than a specific and static subject as in a portrait. Okay. And it uses Joseph and Potiphar's wife as, uh, as an example of this. Let's see what it says about his personal life. He became involved, he became involved in, they left the in out, he became involved in the sexual scandals surrounding Benjamin Deschafeur, you know, being the chauffeur, uh, who was convicted for operating a pederastic network and executed. This was Deschafeur, not Nadier. Um, Nadier was imprisoned in the Bastille, and his membership in the Academy was rescinded. Rather than suffer the fate of Deschafeur, whose corpse was publicly burned in the Place de Greve, he committed suicide by cutting his throat with an oyster knife. Uh, okay, sounds reasonable. It says citation needed, so maybe somebody made it up. Who knows? Uh, well, 
even if they cited something, they could have made it up. But anyway, if he did that, I mean, not not commit suicide, but was involved in a pederastic network, you know, pederasty. Uh, I remember that song from Hair. It goes, uh, Sodomy, fellatio, cunnilingus, pederasty. Father, why do these words sound so nasty? Well, you know, I got no problem with the first three. Well, not much problem with the first three anyway, but but I got a problem with with pederasty. I, I draw the line at that. That's that's uh, that's uh, not only pedophilia, but it's pedophilia acted upon. You know, it's more than being a minor attracted person. It's being a minor attracted person and acting on it. So. You know, leave the damn kids alone. Okay, groomer, leave the kids alone. Oh, by the way, she looks kind of young in that in that picture, in 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 the painting, Joseph and Potiphar's wife. She looks younger in that representation. She does look legal though, although you know what was legal in ancient Egypt. Who knows? But in in the next one. Um, sermons 15, it's also Joseph and Potiphar's wife. You know, I suppose I'm just partial to uh, paintings with bare-chested women. <laughs> I don't know. Uh, she looks older. She looks more mature than the uh, nubile young thing up above. But anyway, it's the same scene. And I justify this um, because the two episodes kind of overlapped a little bit, and we, I was still talking about this in in sixteen, but it, most of the action happened in fifteen, which you know she didn't get much action. She didn't get any from him. Let's see, who did this one? Giovanni Francesco Barbieri. I bet he's Italian. Let's see. Where is he at? Oh, my tab didn't have Giovanni Francesco Barbieri on it. It, it has Guercino because it says he was better known as Guercino. Um, an Italian Baroque painter and draftsman who was active in Rome and Bologna. The vigorous naturalism of his early manner contrasts with the classical equilibrium of his later works. That sounded like Bologna to me. His many drawings are noted for their luminosity and lively style. Okay, he doesn't sound very interesting. So let's go on. Number 14. Reconciliation of Jacob with Esau, circa uh, 1640, by Giovanni, another Giovanni, Giovanni Maria Botala. Now this, this uh, shows Jacob and Esau getting back together after several years. Jacob had gone off uh, to another country 
and had acquired two wives. Uh, <laughs> his his uh, his father-in-law tricked him the first the first marriage. You know, he was hot for the second one, the second daughter, and uh, and uh, the father of the two girls uh, substituted the older daughter who was not as much of a looker for uh, for the second one. I don't know. I guess I guess they wore veils or something so he couldn't tell. But let's not get too involved in that. Jacob is 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 the guy uh with the dark beard and uh Esau is the one with the red hair and beard, the more muscular looking. Jacob was was afraid when he came back into the country that uh that Esau would uh meet him with his armies and 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 slay them <laughs> but uh didn't happen they reconciled let's see this giovanni maria batala was an italian painter active in the baroque period you know i i must like the baroque style um which makes sense because i like baroque music better than the other other um other types of classical music. Uh, well, I like early classical. Mozart's okay. Uh, Beethoven, you know, he's still understandable, but um, but he got a little got a little bit bombastic, probably because he was going deaf, you know. So he liked uh, he liked a lot of loud noises. Batala was born in Savona. He traveled to Rome as a young boy and later became pupil of Pietro di Cortona in Rome. He painted in Rome, Naples, and Genoa. He was taken into the patronage of Cardinal Giulio, Giulio Sacchetti, for whom he painted a meeting of Jacob and Esau. Okay, well, there's another example of, uh, of different titles being used for the same painting. Because what I've got is reconciliation of Jacob with Esau. I assume it's the same painting. It doesn't show it in the article. It says Batala acquired the name of Raffaellino from his great veneration for the works of Raphael. Okay, well, let's move on. Hey, next page. Next page on the Onsug if you're following along. We're down to number 13. And we here we have a depiction of Jacob wrestling with the angel. 1639 by Bartholomeus Breenberg. Breenberg was a Dutch golden age painter of Italian and Italianate landscapes in Rome and Amsterdam. But anyway, it says Jacob wrestling with the angel. Well, it makes a good picture, you know, but these, uh, in the Bible, it doesn't really say that, um, that angels have wings. That was something that was added later on. I think it was mostly to do with uh, re representing, so you'd know who the angel was in the picture. You know, the angel's the one that can fly. And that, that's what the wings mean, you know, that they, they can take flight. 
just like uh, the halos, maybe, uh, maybe means that they were wearing space helmets. I don't know. <laughs> but anyway, it's, it's very hard to find paintings of angels that don't have wings. It, just as it's very hard to find um, accounts of angels in the Bible where they do have wings. Usually they're just referred to as men or messengers. But anyway, go on to number 12. Jacob fleeing from Laban, 1686, by Philippo Lari. Now, Laban was the father-in-law, the one that, uh, you know, ended up marrying two daughters off to, uh, to Jacob. Um, you know, he substituted the, the older, less beautiful daughter for, uh, for the second daughter, uh, with the excuse that, hey, wouldn't, wouldn't be right, you know, for the younger daughter to get married first. So here, you've worked seven years, uh, for this girl's hand, but you've got to take this one too. And, and, and plus, if you want them both, you've got to work another seven years for me. <laughs> So, no wonder he was fleeing. Jacob fleeing from Laban. This is when they packed up and, and, and took off for the old country. Anyway, Sermons 11. Uh, this one is Jacob's Ladder. Now, this one is one that I know that has um, two different names because it's also known as Jacob's Dream. And you can see down at the bottom... Uh, that Jacob is uh, is is lying on a rock or something, you know, he got his head propped up on a rock, and uh, there's there's a ladder ascending up into the sky, up towards heaven, and heaven just means sky, um, and these the angels, you know, you can tell they're angels because they got wings, they didn't really have wings. They're going, they're going up and down on this, um, well, ladder is a good name for it. Some uh, paintings depicted as a staircase. But you can see the one down at the bottom has just said, that's uh, one small step for God, one giant leap for Godkind. Because, you know, the, the angels are really minor gods. And if, if you go on up into the clouds, you'd see a big mothership. Well, no, not probably not a mothership. More like a, uh, uh, a hovercraft or something up there. Some, of course, some sort of shuttle uh, that has brought them down from above. But anyway, I, don't like, I like the name Jacob's Ladder better than Jacob's Dream because I don't think he was dreaming. Or if he was dreaming, it was a dream that was affected by what was going on around him. Well, let's go on. And we go to Sermons 10. This one, and you probably recognize the style by now. Another Tissot. See, uh, this he would be perfect for one of those uh, art appreciation tests, you know, where you they, they show you something that is not one of their famous works, and they ask you, you know, whose style is this in, or who do you think painted this? And you could probably recognize them by now. 
this this depicts uh, an incident when uh, Esau, the the big red-headed guy, you know, with the uh, the quiver of arrows on his back, um, has been out hunting and he's starving to death, and um, Jacob is cooking some uh, red lentil stew. And it smells good to Esau, and he says, "Give me some of that, some of that stew. I'm starving." And uh, and Jacob, you know, he says, uh, "Well, sell me your birthright, and I'll give you some stew." Now, that, is that any way to treat a brother? You know, really, and he's starving. Your birthright. He had the Esau had the birthright because even though they were twins, obviously they weren't identical twins. They were. Um, um, fraternal twins, uh, Esau had come out first, and and Jacob, you know, came out after him, hanging on to his who to his heel. <laughs> so so he had uh, he was entitled to the to the bulk of the inheritance. Esau was, and uh, that's what Jacob was was offering a. Uh, a bowl of stew for. And Esau said, well, you know, my inheritance is not going to do me any good if I kill over dead. So, uh, yeah, I'll take that. I'll take that deal. And that's why Jacob was uh, concerned later that Esau was going to meet him with with a force of men and, and, and kill him and his uh, two wives and the rest of their clan. But anyway... Now we go on down to number nine. This one is called The Sacrifice of Isaac by uh, Caravaggio. <laughs> Caravaggio, okay, he's just got one name. He's kind of like Liberace or Cher, or, or, you know. Uh, let's see why. Caravaggio. Uh, Michelangelo Marisi. Uh, Michelle Angelo Marigi or Amarigi de Caravaggio, <laughs> known as simply Caravaggio. Hmm. Well, I, I can't say that I blame him. Uh, was an Italian painter active in Rome for most of his artistic life. Uh, paintings have been characterized by art critics as combining a realistic observation of the human state both physical and emotional, with a dramatic use of lighting, which had a formative influence on Baroque painting. So he's kind of pre-Baroque, but he was going for Baroque. Let's see. This 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 picture, uh, Abraham and Isaac, and I'm getting about ready to take a break. Um, Abraham and Isaac... Uh, Oh, the, the picture is called The Sacrifice of Isaac, done in 1602 by Caravaggio. Um, <clears throat> it depicts the incident when Abraham was uh, instructed by God, or by a God, or by a, uh, a spokesman for the head of the gods, however you want to put it, uh, to sacrifice his son. Bob Dylan wrote a song about it. Well, at least partly about it. 
it would have been a lot better song if he'd continued, but he, the first verse uh, was about Abraham and Isaac. After that, he, he kind of went off the deep end and started doing nonsense uh, verses. If he had told the whole story, that would have been a classic. But it's, it's, in a, it's in a song called Highway 61 Revisited. And I'm going to pause here, uh, go and get me something to drink and, and so on. And uh, after we hear the first verse of that song, I will be back to continue. And to avoid any copyright problems, I'm going to do the vocals for the song rather than Bob. Well, God said to Abraham, kill me a son. Abe said, man, you must be putting me on. God said, no. Abe said, what? God said, you can do what you want, Abe, but next time you see me coming, you better run. Well, Abe said, where you want this killing done? God said, out on Highway 61. And we're back. Yeah, one of these days maybe I will uh, will write additional verses for that, and uh, you know, <laughs> make make a version, the version it could have been uh, had he not gone off and done the usual Bob Dylan stuff. <laughs> uh, anyway, he he knew he knew about. Uh, Abraham and Isaac. He was he was Jewish. I think his original name was Zimmerman. He stole Dylan from uh, uh, Dylan Thomas. Well, didn't steal it. He used it. Dylan Thomas wasn't using it. <laughs> or was he? When did he die? Oh, well, it doesn't matter. Anyway, yeah, and he knew he knew about Highway sixty one too. You know, Highway sixty one is the blues highway. But oddly enough. It starts way up in Minnesota, which is where Bobby Bobby Zimmerman is from. I don't know why I called it Highway 61 Revisited, though, because um, as far as I know, he didn't write uh, a song just called Highway 61 and then uh, uh, modify it later into this, this song. He did do one called Highway 51, but I think he knows the difference, you know, because that was actually... A, a number that uh, that showed up in his neighborhood, or you know, in his state anyway. I've been down the Blues Highway, which you know, down in uh, I haven't been to any parts of it that are north of Memphis, but I've been all the way down from from Memphis down to uh, New Orleans. You know, sixty one runs right through, right down the length or the height, I guess you'd say, of, of Mississippi. Uh, and uh, Highway 49 comes in um, over from Helena as you're going south. It, it, it joins in and, and follows along with 61 until you get to, I think, Clarksdale, Clarksdale, Mississippi. And Clarksdale likes to claim that they are the uh, original crossroads. They've got a, a big uh, 
like a monument thing with a big giant guitar on top of it, and it's showing 61 and 49. You know, the crossroads supposedly where uh, the old blues men, Robert Johnson in particular, went and uh, went at midnight and uh, and sold it, sold his soul to the devil. Um, I didn't do that. If you heard me play guitar, you know I didn't do that. Or if I did do that, I, I didn't get much return on it. So, um, yeah, while we were down there somewhere, I don't think, I don't think it was in Clarksdale. I can't remember. There was some museum or other, and it, and they had these, uh, like highway signs, those, those metal highway signs, kind of like metal signs, you know, that, that you see a lot of, uh, old retro ads and things on. And, and they had the, um, they had them made up. You know, with the with the shield looking thing that uh, they looked real official. had a, had a sixty one and a and a forty nine, and uh, brought them home with me after we finished our tour down there. And um, Lisa, my wife, she uh, put them on the wall and painted a, a a post, like a metal post that they would actually put the things on, and had them painted in the the little. Uh, oval holes you know that they uh, that they cut in those things I guess to save material uh, and it, it looked real nice it looked like I was down at the crossroads here in my music room uh, and uh, you know a few years ago we decided to uh, to repaint um, these inside the inside of the house and change the color of this room and I said, I hate to paint over this. And she said, well, oh, I can do it for you again sometime. But, you know, never got around to it. And now, you know, she's gone. So I've got my little signs put away. Yeah. You know, that's that's not my major regret from, <laughs> um, you know, from her being gone. But anyway, uh, on to um, um, what we were doing, you know. We, uh, I guess we were finished up with, uh, the sacrifice of Isaac. So we'll go on page down to, uh, number eight. Oh, this is, this is, um, okay. This story here, <laughs> this one is called, um, Lot and His Daughters. And it was painted around 1600 by, how would you say this? Let me figure this out. Joachim Utvel, a, uh, a Dutch mannerist painter and draftsman, as well as a highly successful flax merchant and town councillor of Utrecht. <laughs> uh, oh well. Anyway, he the scene that he is painting here that are, that he painted here. Um, I believe I remember that he painted it several times. I've seen a couple different versions of this. It must have turned him on or something. This is Lot and his daughters. What happened? You may have heard, you know, that uh, that uh, Lot and his wife and daughters were fleeing Sodom um, when... <laughs> The Lord rained down fire and brimstone on it and destroyed it. And because uh, Lot's wife 
looked back, she was turned into a pillar of salt. Well, what I think really happened was that she was lagging behind the rest of them, looking back, hoping that the rest of her kids would be coming and catching up with them. And she was there, you know, to show them the way that they were going. And she got caught in the blast, in the, in, in the nuclear blast, when the Yahwehlians nuked Sodom and Gomorrah. And she was uh, uh, reduced to her uh, constituent chemicals, a pile of them, uh, her, of her essential salts, you might say. Uh, she was turned into a pile of salt. And uh, Lot and his daughters found refuge in a cave, which acted as sort of a uh, makeshift fallout shelter, and they made the best of it. The girls got together. They decided, you know, the whole world had been destroyed, and they were going to have to start the human race over again. You've probably read these uh, science fiction books that have this exact scenario, um, but they said, you know, who's going to father our children? I guess it'll have to be dear old dad. And so they got him drunk, you know, and 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 um, uh, did it with him. <laughs> and you know, he, uh, you remember uh, from my comments about um, uh, Pharaoh's daughter about her being being the uh, uh, looking pretty white, although the her her um, attendants were all kind of dark skinned. Uh, she looked very white, and uh, Potiphar's wife looked very white. Uh, these uh, these men seemed to prefer white women, and, and Lot's daughters fit the bill. I and mean, they're really white. They look like that one in particular. She looks like she's been swimming in the flower bin or something. But anyway, <laughs> dirty old man, uh, check out his hands. I, I, in, enlarge this. That the right hand he's holding up his glass as if to say, "Here, look over here, look at this," you know. And she's she's uh, got her head turned looking, and in the meantime, he's reaching around with his other hand, copping a feel. <laughs> looks like he is. Uh, looks like he's into feeling the nips with his fingertips, you know, which, you know, it is kind of fun um, for. <laughs> I don't think it's very fun on the receiving end, especially if they're sensitive. But, um, you know, that's from what I remember, you know, Lisa's been gone almost a year now. And, and she didn't feel good for a few months before that. So it is a distant memory turning into a distant memory. Well, anyway, I don't know what to say about um old Joachim Utville, if that's how you say it. But he may have been a dirty old man, too. Let's go on to number seven. And this one is, uh, well, I know this one has another name because I've seen it. But this one, the name that I found it under was Hagar, Ishmael, and Elroy. Elroy, maybe, by uh, Anton Leinweber, who was a German. Let's see what it says about him. A Bohemian German painter and illustrator known for his Orientalist and Biblical scenes. Yeah. Orientalism is, is where um, uh, 
Western artists depict Middle Eastern um, scenes, you know, in some cases never having been there. But although, you know, as I mentioned earlier, Tissot went there and, uh, and soaked up the um, surroundings. So this guy lived from 1845 to 1921. So he is uh, more more modern than most of my artists that I've found. Yeah, the story, though, uh, Hagar and um, Ishmael, her son, who you see in the background leaned up against a tree over there, were uh, banished from uh, Abraham and, or by Abraham and Sarah. Ishmael was, was Abraham's firstborn son, but, you know, Hagar wasn't really... Uh, his wife, she was uh, his his wife's servant. And because she was uh, unable to bear a child at that time, she said, you know, uh, take my maid, you know, and, and uh, do it with her and see what you can come up with. So that's what he did. And, and until Sarah had her womb opened miraculously by the Lord, I think this was a... a uh, Yahwehlian surgical procedure, which uh, um, had been done actually before that to uh, another um, barren wife or two. But, um, you know, Hagar, when she had Ishmael, she thought, you know, he was he was uh, due for great things because he was going to be Abraham's main heir. But then when Sarah had the child, had the boy, you know, that... that uh, that killed their uh, their chances, and and Sarah, Abraham's wife, uh, saw Ishmael making fun of the baby. You know, he was resentful that he was being replaced, and uh, she uh, told Abraham to get rid of get rid of these two, and so he did. He sent them packing, and sent them out. You know, with a jug of water and uh, to cross the desert and you can see that jug lying on the ground there empty um she she has uh, left the boy kind of away from her because she didn't want to see him die and um and then the angel appeared to her and of course this angel has wings but you know <laughs> hey, this this the the painting is called uh, under this name Hagar Ishmael Elroy. Now it doesn't say in the passages of the Bible that this was Elroy. Elroy was uh, appeared to Hagar earlier, and uh, he had he had told her that she was going to have a son, uh, and I suppose the the painter decided that hey this must be the same angel, the same God. And I say God because El means God. It's the singular form of Elohim. So El Roy would be the God named Roy. Let's go on to number six. The drunkenness of Noah. Yeah, yeah I've got to have had lots of uh, sexy, sexy pictures of the women. So here's, here's one for the ladies. Uh, Noah laid out... Uh, he had been passed out drunk after the big barbecue bash that they held for the Yahwehlian gods the night before. And uh, his um, 
<laughs> his son, uh, Ham, is making fun of him, you know, pointing at him. And, and his other two sons, uh, Shem and uh, Yafet, are um, uh, backing in with their cloaks on their shoulders. They're going to drape them over him without looking at him, you know. So as a result of this uh, incident, um, Noah ended up cursing. Um, actually, he could, didn't curse Ham because I guess he had already blessed him, but he cursed Ham's son, Canaan, which, uh, you know, Canaan grew into the, his line grew into the land of Canaan, which the, uh, the Israelites uh, eventually came to possess. It was their promised land. If I understand this correctly. As, who painted this? Andrea Sachi or Saki? Saki or Sachi? I do not know. Let's see what it says about this person. Appears to be a male, so even though his name is Andrea, <laughs> or looks like his name is Andrea, it's probably Andrea or something. Oh, that sounds feminine too. Anyway, he was. He lived from 1599 to 1661, was an Italian painter of high Baroque classicism, active in Rome. Okay, on to number five. Oh, number five is another Tussaud, which you should recognize by now. Although this one is not as good as most of his others. This, this, there's something wrong with the perspective here. The rainbow doesn't look right. The, the arc is, you know, not in the proper scale. Uh, you know, it would be a lot bigger than that if it were really sitting that close to them. But it, it's, it, it's, um, it's a, a representation of what happened the night before, you know, the night before Noah woke up naked with a hangover. Uh, they, they threw the big barbecue bash for the Yahwehlians. And uh, you can see, you know, Noah's up there at the head of the altar, or the barbecue pit, as I prefer to call it, and his wife is down there at the foot, and and the boys, uh, Shem, Ham, and Yafet, are uh, uh, on one side, and, and their wives are on the other side, and they've all got their hands out like, hey, you got any burgers ready yet? It's called Noah's Sacrifice. I, I'd rather call it Noah's Barbecue. Number four, this is uh, for the episode, uh, one of the episodes. I had two episodes about the, the Watchers and the Nephilim. The, the, one, the one before this is also about them. But this, this, is, this is one of them. This, is the, uh, uh, this painting is called Fallen Angel, and it was done in 1847 by Alexander Cabanel. See what it says about about him. He was a French painter, painted historical, classical, and religious subjects in the academic style, uh, and all the academic style means is that it's the style that they taught in the academies at that time. So that really doesn't tell us a whole lot. But it's it's pretty pretty um, harsh looking. I mean, this looks like a bad guy. 
And you can see up in the uh, in the background behind there, you can see. Let's uh, let's enlarge this some. You can see the uh, the other watchers, the uh, Nephilim. Yeah, it's questionable whether the the watchers were themselves Nephilim or if the Nephilim were were just the offspring of of the watchers, the giant offspring. But you can see these watchers, the sons of God, are pairing off with the daughters of men. The Yahwehlians and the humans are getting together and, and going to produce offspring. And they could do that because the humans were originally created using Yahwehlian DNA. Oh, well, if, if you're interested in this stuff, you can actually listen to my shows. Let's concentrate on the art. So on to number three, and this is um, um, this one is this one is a statue. It's not a painting. It's called "The Sons of God Saw the Daughters of Men That They Were Fair," and that's from that verse in um, um, what is it Genesis six three, I believe it is. It says it was uh, sculpted by Daniel Chester French. <clears throat> he. Uh, had a model of it done by 1918, and he had it totally carved by 1923. So I'm assuming that means that would be in the public domain. And the photograph of it is also dedicated to the public domain by whoever took it. Has the uh, CC0 status in the Creative Commons world. Let's see what it says about this Daniel Chester French sculptor guy. Uh, he lived from 1850 to 1931. Was an American sculptor of the late, first American we've had, isn't it? Of the late 19th and early 20th centuries. Best known for his design of the monumental statue of Abraham Lincoln in the Lincoln Memorial. Wow. I know what that looks like. I, I like I like this other one better though. I like this the sons of God saw the daughter of men daughters of men that they were fair a lot better than I do old seated Abe. It's uh it's a uh, very nice statue uh, and and it uh it portrays pretty well what to, what had to have been going on although uh, you know the son of God there doesn't appear to be very turned on. Maybe he's turned off by that unsightly birthmark on her uh, left buttock, as uh, Forrest would say. I don't know. I think it's kind of cute. On to number two. We're getting close, folks. Number two is The Garden of Eden with the Fall of Man by, uh, this is the first team we've had, Peter Paul Rubens and Jan Bruegel the Elder. They were both uh, famous Flemish painters. I don't necessarily have to look that up. Let's see what school that represents. One, let's see. Rubens is considered the most influential artist of the Flemish Baroque tradition. He's also known for painting full-figured women, uh, although Eve in here does not appear to be much overweight at all, if at all. 
She's just medium sized. He he painted the the two figures, the Adam and Eve figures, and uh, Bruegel painted the uh, um, the the landscapes and all the animals. And finally, number one, in the beginning, and this this one is called God the Father, by Giovanni Battista Sima, also called Sima da Conegliano. He was an Italian Renaissance painter who mostly worked in Venice, considered part of the Venetian school, although he was also influenced by Antonello de Messina in the emphasis he give, gives to landscape background, blah, 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 blah. Yeah, it's not a real good representation of God, I don't think. God's not an old man, although, you know, at least, at least God has, uh, has his space helmet on, as you can see. But that's not the God that created the heavens and the earth. Those gods came later and created man, the Yahwehlian gods, who are not mentioned up until, you know, the, uh, the Garden of Eden story. Oh, well. Uh, oh. What else I got here? Oh, okay. Yeah, it's got my two little specials I did. One one uh, for Easter and one for Christmas. And the one for Easter doesn't have actually have artwork. It's just got a photograph. But the Christmas special has uh, has a painting, which for some reason won't enlarge. <laughs> well, I guess I can use uh, Control Plus. Yeah. Better get it up there. By Domenico Ghirlandaio, 15th century, the Madonna with Saint Giovannino. Uh, and Saint Giovannino, it, it, you know, it, we had a name earlier where it had a diminutive form um, of, of some name or other. This one is like Little Giovanni or Little John. Little John. Giovanni, I think, means John. It shows Jesus there with his with his little halo uh, and his scepter, and uh, which I don't think he actually carried around with him when he was that size, or anything, or if he ever carried it around, or if ever had a halo on other than a. I don't think he needed a he needed a a space helmet because he, you know, he was. Um, Half human, anyway. <laughs> the other half was um, well. We won't go into that. I, I will. I, uh, I'm running long, so I guess we'll about wrap it up here. And uh, if you're interested in further elucidation, you can uh, check out some of my sermons episodes. And in the meantime. Let's send it back to PQ. Oh, yes, and you ought to. This is making me want to go back and listen through again because uh, this was like a really neat, although backwards, review of the course so far. And following along, I, I, I hope you had the opportunity to go to look. I, I had to look at all these images and this this was fine uh this was a very enjoyable kind of an 
art lecture and a review of our uh, studies so far. And, um, and we drew the line on pederasty, which I, I stand with Dave on that. I mean, yes, you do this and you do that. And as long as everybody is um, consenting and what's it, no harm done, uh, yeah, it, it, it's party time and go for it. And uh, it, it, restrictions are at your own um, discernment. But uh, once you get to that, uh, kids stuff uh, yeah uh, at this point in time uh, I, I stand there and that th I think that's a good place to have one's feet uh, planted so to speak an odd sort of countdown though that was neat that is, and going down to number one but of course not like a bit but there is as I like to say Nothing like the Overnightscape Central and the art of us all. I mean, and, and art is just so, I, like I was saying earlier, you can, you can or can choose not to call yourself an artist and i'm kind of leaning back towards maybe i'm not so much an artist after uh the grudgingly accepting the onus and it is i mean then if you say you're an artist then that like it creates all these expectations oh and you do do paintings or and you know i well i do like or a recording artist and it's my stuff there's no record label who is out headhunting anything like anything i have ever made any delusion i may ever have of some sort of uh, renown for the noises i make exists and i know this purely in my head and it's fun but artist i don't know i i i feel a certain level of devotion or success and i have neither of those yes i do these things but i'm pretty lazy at times and yes i get quite a bit done so to speak but it's not the same when i see people like the example i used earlier uh, the artist shaman ayakal q uh he his output these huge murals and many of them and sculptures and wood carvings and it's that's more it's somebody whose like entire life is built around art which i i'd say it's a semi a demi artist a semi artist and uh i'm more enjoying uh discovering and appreciating other artists i mean and and my the artist that i considered great as a kid i mean coming up uh, there Leonardo da Vinci, the, anybody who did like that real realism and anatomy and I, abstraction just did nothing for me. And that I slowly took that on and I'm not even sure how. I'm trying to recollect what the procedure was. I think the art history classes that I took at uh, when I snuck into college the summer of 1977 
gave me a real better basis and from there i've kind of like everything else dabbled a little here saw a little there and my years living in santa fe i was exposed to so many artists and so many ideas and as a low art being exposed to comic books gave me a certain vocabulary uh, I mean, and that's just illustrative art. I did very little that uh, has been done in comic books or graphic novels or whatever advanced. Uh, the graphic storytelling, uh, this is illustration. Very little of it, if any, could be considered like art art. Like, really. I mean, I love Jack Kirby. I would love to own some of his quote-unquote art but this i mean number one it was done as a as a craft and number two it's i don't know uh, perhaps i use the word art for something far too lofty and i am willing to concede that and if i'm i am then i mean almost anything is art and almost anybody is an artist and maybe i I don't know. There's a certain elite. Well, yes, artists are special. And maybe it, it isn't. Maybe, you know, even a plumber is an artist or a, a, an automobile mechanic or a landscaper. I mean, there is an art to almost everything that humans do. And with that in mind, speaking of somebody with the art of speaking, Frank Edward Nora awaits us all here on the Overnightscape Central. And uh, yeah, let's hand the floor and your ears and my ears. Well, let's listen to Frank together. Driving down uh, to Basking Ridge uh, with my wife Denise to see uh, my in-laws for our nephew Graham's uh, birthday yesterday. Uh, there were several moments. Uh, for example, uh, we needed to get gas. So there's a gas station in Little Falls, a very uh, strange area where all these highways merge. There's a train yard, and there's a weird office complex on this hill. And there's also, on the other side, there's also like a 55 and over uh, housing complex, like on a hill with one of those big you know, walls they built. There used to even be like a pinball place up the street. Then there's this little tiny um, uh, place called the Great Notch Inn, which is this sort of music venue that a lot of uh, bikers go to. So there's always these, a lot of motorcycles parked outside. And there's this giant thing called Tiger Mart, <laughs> sort of based on Exxon. Anyway, it just it just feels, and I've talked about this place before, it, just seems, it seems like a crossroads of energy of some sort. So there's all this construction going on, and uh, this gas station is open, I think it's a mobile, right across the street from the Exxon, and um, you can. And uh, last time I drove, I, I usually drive that way, you know, go see my father. And our in-laws are in the same vicinity, down forty-six. So basically, uh, last time I was driving, the car was almost out of gas. In fact, the you know, the gas light came on. You know, fuel low. That's when you know you're in trouble. Uh, so to go to this station, right. There's all this construction, like like there, there's a road between the highway and the gas station that's all like beat up and under construction, but you can still go in 
it's all you know partitioned off and you have to you have to go in that way and then you think you're gonna it's gonna be hell to merge back into the traffic going out because there's real heavy traffic there so I did it last time and it was actually a very pleasant gas buying experience right and it turns out that lane when you're exiting is uh is you know it's a merge lane from so actually the heavier traffic is from three and then 46 merges into three but that part of 46 is not quite as heavy as three is Anyway, so I found it to be a rather pleasant place to get gas. Just a pleasant energy, right? And this relates to art, right? So this, there's, just, there's a certain aspect of art that I feel is sort of like the elephant in the room that I know in past like discussions about art, I'm always talking about like this, the great art hoax and scam of, you know, how people are, you know, convincing people that certain things are art. But this is a different angle. So this basically... So I'm sitting there while we're getting gas, and it seemed like it took forever to fill up the gas tank. I don't know, maybe what is this a slow pump? You know, it's a very slow pumping system. But you know, like over to our like sort of our right, that big like deck, a big like brown stone wall that goes up to the 55 and older community, and then across the street the Tiger Mart and that office complex like on that hill. And I said to my wife, "This this is quite an like quite a cool energy here, right? Like it just I was perceiving something." Right, it just felt like something, right? That there, and uh, you know, it's very hard to describe, but it's a feeling, and it's an aesthetic feeling that I got that was extremely unique. I was experiencing something that was very hard to put into words. Then we uh, drove down Forty Six, and stopped by uh, PJ's uh, New Orleans Coffee, and again, it's sort of like this uh, kind of a remote like strip mall on Route 46 and there's just a certain feeling there. Again, I'm using this this sort of energy or feeling like it's it's very hard to describe, but it's something I'm an aesthetic experience I'm having. And then we needed to buy a birthday card, so we went down uh right two you know plazas down from PJ's was uh a plaza with Walgreens. I've I've passed by it a million times. Uh, but I've never went there, so we went to the Walgreens, and it was so cool. It was like an old, like '80s style Walgreens. Even had that '80s smell in there. It was amazing. Like it's sort of been preserved, and it was a you know strip mall. The uh, Walgreens on the end, and then probably like five or six businesses to the right of it, with kind of a a brick, um, you know, sort of uh, over, over whatever. There was a, you go outside each store, it's still covered, right? It's like a, a covered walkway with brick. So when we came out of the, <clears throat> excuse me, when they went out, when we came went out of the uh, the Walgreens, you just see down that brick walkway in, in perspective, right? With all the stores. And it was just, again, it was an amazing look. And one of the things I'm describing is basically, what am I experiencing, right? It's, you know, it's a similar thing that I experience aesthetically with, uh, you know, lots of, um, you know, like the dead malls. That's a that's another huge thing when you go into a shopping mall that's like dying, and it and it has this indescribable beauty. And this is what I'm talking about: indescribable beauty. Um, that, right? Not everyone is going to experience that particular uh, perception. But some people do, you know, dead malls. I'm sure I know so many other people see that same beauty in there. But again, we're sort of lacking a a word for this phenomenon. Aesthetics, beauty, energy, feeling, right? And this, I think, really is a, uh, 
again, the elephant in the room when it comes to art, right? Because, you know, of all the of all the arguments you've had about art, is it art, is it not art? Like in the end, you know, if a meteor hits the earth and everyone's gone, like no one's, there isn't going to be nothing left of any of it, right? Like it was all just people's opinions and people's uh, aesthetic sensations, like what they're experiencing, right? So I think in order to describe this, and this is something I think about all the time, it's, it's something that we, you know, using the English language or maybe any language, it's something we, we, we kind of lack the, the tools in terms of words and phrases to describe this, to talk about this. It's alluded to and it's um, suggested in a way, but it's not exactly something that we just come right out and talk about, right? So we need to just sort of step back and try to figure out what is this. So this is a perceptual matrix, um, a morphic field. This essentially is how we derive meaning from our senses, right? So, right, and I've struggled with this topic over the years, and I don't know if I've ever been able to fully kind of understand it, but but we can build a framework, and this is the essence of art, basically. So, I'll use examples that are in my field of vision right now, like there's a chair over there, right? It's kind of an older chair, Maybe a chair from the 70s, you know, like like, like a, a dining room chair that's way out of fashion, you know, made of wood with sort of a green cushion on it. So what I'm looking at it and I see it's a chair. So just this one thing, I'm looking at it and I see it's a chair. So um, how could I possibly know that it's a chair by looking at it, right? I'm just, my eyes are taking in light, right? And the light that's been reflected off of objects, right? And there's a certain pattern or shape that uh, I'm interpreting as chair. But when I look at the chair, right, I don't experience any of the intermediate steps, right? I just see there's a chair, right, which everyone can relate to. Look around. There's a TV set. Oh, there's some books. There's a stool. There's a window. There's a light. You know, like it's it's what this is. Um, an instantaneous phenomenon, right? So there's a number of ways to think. Let's just think about it in kind of like the most mainstream way of thinking about this and kind of interpreting this, which is that um, your eye is like a camera right, is letting light in, and the light, because it's like a lens, it's sort of uh, taking in the light and then sort of uh, making it upside, so the the light is hitting the back of your retina or your, whatever they call that thing in your, the back of your eye that's like a a receiver, it's upside down, right, the image is upside down, of course you're not seeing it as upside down, but the image is upside down on the back of your eye, I believe, and you can do this with a pinhole camera or by using a lens. You can, you know, see that little upside down image, right? It's kind of cool that like the cam, what do they call it, camera obscura or a pinhole camera. You can absolutely do it. You just take a box and put a little pinhole in it and then take a piece of paper and point it at uh, at stuff. And then you can sort of see an upside down image on the, on the piece of paper, right? Like it's really, it's kind of the same thing. It's just the way light works. 
Light, by the way, is you know one of the essential phenomena of the senses the, that we perceive things through light is such a mysterious phenomenon on its own. But that's a whole other topic. You know, um, it's one of these things where we experience it all the time, but really don't understand it. But let's not worry about that side of it. You know, so then, so the idea is that I'm looking at a bunch of stuff. There's like a million things in my point of view. There's probably literally a million things in my point of view, right? When you think of every contour, every little detail of everything, even though I don't have my glasses on, so things are a little bit blurry. There's a table. There's some cushions. There's my cat. Mojo Fuzzo. Mojo. <laughs> uh, right? Hitting the back of your eye. And, and we can, you know, this phenomenon is the same for any of the senses, right? Touch, taste, smell. And hearing, especially, which is what you're doing right now. You're, you're you're hearing a bunch of waves and you're interpreting what I'm saying. You're deriving the meaning from it. So when I when, when I say this stuff, it's not like you're hearing, blah, 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 blah. oh, how do I interpret that? The inter- interpretation is instantaneous. The meaning is instantaneous from your, from your perspective. But let's just stick with the visual because I think it's, you know, it's, it's just we have to choose one just to go with. So the idea is that this pattern is on the back of my eye and there's... A lot of stuff going on. So the idea is that there is a mechanism by which the patterns are analyzed, right? There's an analysis of patterns that is essentially like what that chair looks like doesn't have any inherent meaning. It's just a bunch of, um, you know, if we think about pixels, anyone that's, that's worked on computers, you know about pixels. All our imagery on, in a digital sense is just a, a, a grid of squares, right? One square after another, which have different color values, right? Rows and columns, right? In the old days of photography, there was not pixels per se, but it was uh, um, a, a chemical particles, right, that, that were photosensitive. You took a photograph and um, light-sensitive particles would be um, chemically changed, and when they're developed, the ones that were not hit with light stayed, you know, stay dark, and the ones that were hit with light stay light, or I think it's the other way around, stay light, and the ones that were hit with light stay dark, so it's just not pixels, but it's just particles. That's the green you see in photographs, right? So, I know we're not seeing in pixels, unless we're in a computer simulation, which is another whole separate situation, which really does not impact this too much, right, in terms of what I'm talking about, whether we're in a computer simulation or not. But there's, what do they say? There's like rods and cones in the back of your eye that are stimulated by the light and can perceive color and can perceive brightness values, right? So there's a pattern, right, uh, of um, color data that is that is stimulating a rows and columns, essentially, of rods and cones that are stimulated and and that essentially produces a some kind of a a signal, right? A, a, a wave. I know it's data, right? And that then is goes into the brain and is interpreted. And so, because you've learned what a chair looks like, you can see that pattern, and, and you can see that chair from in many different lighting conditions, from many different angles, and you can still identify it as a chair. It doesn't have to be just from like one particular angle. So there's an interpretive layer, 
And again, all these things we're talking about, I think a lot of this is a mystery, but there's an interpretive layer and then chair is identified, right? And then what? <laughs> okay. So the uh, from the raw visual data, right, there is almost like an overlay of a, 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 a meaning, right? It's not just a jumbled random pattern, right? You're looking at it and in the space where you're seeing the chair is an overlay of meaning, right? So you're seeing the visuals and then overlaid on it is an understanding or meaning. Again, this is where language fails us. Chair. On this thing is chair. So, right, you would have to imagine that the signal, right, there's an overlay on the signal. You have the, the, the visuals and then you have uh, the meanings, right? Because you don't just see chair, you, you're still seeing exactly, you know, the wood grain and the design and the green cushion. You're still seeing all that. But then there's this thing overlaid with chair. And, the, and that meaning of chair is sort of shared. Oh, that's that old chair. You know, every, all of the aspects of meaning of this chair are sort of overlaid on the image. So, great. So you have a signal where you have the visual information and then you have the meaning information overlaid. Great. So there's information stored in a brain. What does that mean? It's a biological computer. Great. That has nothing to do with, with experience or perception, right? So we have to sort of then say that signal, which combines the visual and the meaning layer, is then passed on to uh, consciousness, right? And uh, there, so there's some act of transfer, right, to the observer, right? And I mean, uh, this, this is where we get, uh, you know, the nature of consciousness, of course, is one of the most mysterious and difficult concepts Yet it is what we are. We are we're soaking in it. You know, we are the consciousness. There is an observer, but that's not necessarily where I want to go with this. I mean, right? Let's keep a lot of this as an open mystery, right? Right. So, what are some? Th I mean, just briefly, what are some theories of consciousness? So the idea is that somewhere, somehow, there is an observer, which is us. We are the observer, right? And we're observing. A particular human being at a given time and um, right experiencing again these are all like limitations of language experiencing an example of visual the an experience of a visual field and then meanings overlaid on it right we really don't know how that works because right a brain is a bunch of biological cells, the neurons, interconnected with chemical and electrical stuff going on. Great. There's a biological computer with chemicals going in and electrical stuff going on. There's no aspect of that that could be an observer, that could be an experiencer, right? It's just 
chemistry and biology and physics and electricity. It's just, right, it's just stuff happening. So in, in this, for this case, what I'm, what I'm trying to get at, it does really, we can just, we don't have to understand what consciousness is, right? Or what these, the nature of these signals, this, how the signals are passed off, etc. What I'm interested in is there is, right, in this process, the, what is it comparing the visuals to or the sensory data to, to determine um, the, uh, the nature of things? So, for example, looking at the chair, it's uh, seeing that it's made of wood. There's four legs. <laughs> there's a back. It's up against a table. There's a bunch. There's there's four of them that are that are the same model of chair. How is it, um, right, matching this pattern to call it chair, right? Now, so basically, the point of this whole discussion is the perceptual database or the perceptual matrix, right? What is it comparing it against in order to provide that overlay of meaning? You see what I'm saying? Chair, right? So, you know, there is one thing... So. In traditional sense, we're saying everyone's born with this brain, and you might say that one interpretation would be that the tabula rasa, you know, that every baby is born without knowing anything, without being able to see, perceive anything, right? I mean, and as the the eyes open and things are seen, right, Somehow in the brain, there is a database system, right? So that as you start seeing things and you start remembering things, there's squares, there's circles, there's light, there's dark, there's human faces, of course, that you begin to build up this database of stuff, learning, right? That's mommy, that's daddy, that's bottle, you know, the, the, the baby stuff, you know. So the idea is that you're sort of adding to this database that's blank, right? And that you're that that you're sort of building up the meaning of things as you're learning, right? So you might imagine, like in the brain, there's a section that can store uh, patterns and meanings, right? So like like uh, what does this mean when you perceive this, right? Square and circle, and cat and dog, right? Sky and ground and house and <laughs> car and it, it was steering wheel, whatever. That there's uh, you know, the one sense that I think, you know, we could all agree on as a theory that people think about is that it's sort of each person's is a, is a, is a walled off system, right? And it's all just happening in your brain. But that somehow there's this system that's built up, right? But I think that it's pretty clear that it's not just a completely blank slate that uh, you know, is filled in, right? It's pretty clear that we're, we have built-in um, instincts, right? That are more than just filling in a blank slate as you're learning, right? There are things that 
have meaning that seem to be not learned, but they're inherent, right? That 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 is built in, right? And I observe this with cats very much. Like like cats have behaviors that are very much built in as instincts, like they're you know uh, hunting instincts where they see something moving and they follow it and they want to they want to pounce on it, right? Um, or the ability to sort of understand to go to the bathroom in a cat box, right? I think for us, for example, perceiving uh, human beings and seeing, you know, um, judging human beings as being, you know, one human being being more beautiful than another one and being more attractive than another one, these things I don't think are learned. I think they're sort of built in, right? It's, it's a built in, it, they call it instinct, right? And these are essential. Uh, what I'm talking about, this overlay of meaning is essential for survival, right? So when we think of a biological entity, right, the ones that are not as suited for survival will not be able to um, mature to the age of, they're, they're able to, to be part of the reproductive process, so their genome will, will not be passed on, right? So we're, like, how could you pause? So the idea is that we perceive, you know, we're attracted to other people sexually, by the way they look, and one of the interpretations is that the base system is meant to uh, is looking for symmetry, right? Facial symmetry and certain body shapes. So we we want to sort of be attracted to we're attracted to other people that that seem to be um, <clears throat> good breeding stock because the children that would be produced will be healthy, symmetrical, etc., and also better able to reproduce, right? Where does that come from, right? So, so the, the pattern of being able to perceive good breeding stock is, you know, that's a horrible way of saying it, but um, is not learned. It is inherent or it's an instinct, right? So um, how is that encoded? So this is, this is where we get to the point where the, it just being a walled-off thing, it doesn't seem to be the case. People, I think, would think that, well, the DNA contains that information. Well, it doesn't seem that it does, actually. Uh, and, th- and this could be a bit controversial in, science, you know, in, in scientific circles that, um, right, so you look at a person that you're attracted to and you see the visuals of that person, but then there's a meaning overlaid on it, kind of like chair, but like, wow, that person's hot, you know, like that's it, that, that's what's, what's overlaid. And as we, as we know from our experience that, you know, just the biological imperative, right, is not, um, you know, seems to be the basis of this perceptual system of judging people by how you perceive them as being attractive. But as we know, like, um, you know, people are born, being attracted to, you know, the same sex or the, no, the opposite sex or the same sex, right? So, and it really does seem that that's something that's inborn and not learned, right? You don't have, a, oh, that, oh, look, that person's attractive, that person's not attractive. Like, no one is saying that to little kids, and if they are, there's a problem. Um, it just seems to be inborn, an inborn aesthetic sense, right? That you see something and you get this feeling, Right? And so let's just say it is, for, for the purpose of this discussion, it doesn't really matter. Some people might want to believe it's all encoded in the DNA. The DNA seems to be encoded to produce proteins, not to produce like pattern recognition, right? So this is the whole idea. 
our pattern recognition abilities of, over, of assigning meanings to patterns does not seem to be something that's in DNA, right? Anyway, there's a whole lot of issues with that. And, you know, I do, you know, have sort of uh, skimmed the work of Rupert Sheldrake about the morphic field. So he basically is talking about how these systems are not in a walled off, each person's not this walled off system, but everything is connected into one larger system, right? That we're plugged in to, um, you know, essentially the way he describes it, a morphic field, that is the shape of things are connected. All morphic mean, you know, morpho means shape. Uh, morphic fields talk about, um, you know, when we talk about instinct, when we talk about something that's just sort of built in and not learned, that this is something that we're part of a matrix that all other uh, brains, all other beings that are existing are connected at some level in a, in a, in a, in a, in a connection of shapes. That's why, you know, he even talks about... Um, Right, as an embryo is developing, there's there's really nothing in the DNA. Forget about pattern matching. There's nothing in the DNA with shapes. Right, it it, it doesn't tell. There's nothing that really guides what shape something's going to be. So, he's saying that, right, a human egg developing is actually in touch with and connected with all other human beings, and is following their shape the parents most closely and then relatives and then all human beings and then all animals and then all life, right? It's, it's connected to all these things at varying levels to define the shape. And the DNA is, is, is essentially like an engine producing the building blocks of life, but the shape is coming from somewhere else. So the idea is that um, this idea of, of connecting patterns in sensory data to meanings is not inside your head. It's basically outside your head. So the idea is that there is a, a system which is similar to, could be similar to what I was talking about. As, as a child learns, uh, there's, a, there's a portion of, so let's go back to the brain thing. As a, as a child learns, there's a, there's a portion of the brain that can store a pattern and then associate a meaning with that pattern, right? The idea is that this is happening on a mass scale, right? That is, all of human perceptions are adding to this outside system, right? The connection of all human beings. Maybe it started just as uh, inside the brain patterns and meanings, but that it's a shared thing now, right? So that you don't have to learn it all yourself, you're subtly taking advantage of all the learning all human beings have done, right? So this, so th this is the next level of this discussion: is that we're we're not talking about anything else other than biology, chemistry, physics, etc. But that there is this unseen connection, right, between the shapes of things, and it is that same mechanism of 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 having a capacity to store patterns and associate them with meanings, but it's not just one person. It's all people, right? And perhaps even across time in some ways, the people of the past and the people of the future you're connected with as well, perhaps more subtly. Um, but he's done actual, there's been actual experiments where 
certain patterns are introduced anew to people in one part of the world, like a puzzle or something, and then people in other parts of the world are able to solve the puzzle faster just through intuition, through instinct. Again, our language lacks all the words to talk about this thing. And with animals as well, they've done experiments where uh, you can benefit from the learning of someone elsewhere, another animal elsewhere, um, through this system, right? It's all very subtle. So again, we have then this built up of all humanity and all history and everything else, right? You can imagine one person seeing a shape and associating something with it. But what about millions and billions of people seeing shapes and associating things with them and building up this huge matrix, this huge database, right? By which we, we match and compare things. So then what is learning, right? The idea is that um, that baby that uh, <clears throat> starting to learn the tabula rasa, the blank slate, right? Uh, will not instantly have access to all human knowledge, right? The idea is that there's the perceptual matrix that's out there, right? But that it would be um, disadvantageous to have access to it. The idea is not that we want to know everything about everything immediately, right? The idea is that each human being really, if you want to get down to survival, needs to just know... uh, what's relevant to them, right? What's relevant to their particular situation in life. So the idea is that, right, as a child, you're, if you look at a chair and your, your parents tell you, oh, oh, little, little Johnny, that's a chair, right? You, in your mind, <clears throat> your brain, right, you're getting the pattern of the chair and associating the meaning of chair and then with that as a key, you're, you're opening up a connection to that larger system and then, right, a flood of information about chairs comes in, right? So that's the idea is that, uh, <clears throat> that you need the key, that you need the um, a, a sort of, a, yeah, it's like a code to get into the system and then you get more about chairs. Do you see what I'm saying? You have to you have to introduce something about it, but then you get more about it, and uh, you know so that I think you could say um, when it comes to uh, the experience that we have of of looking at a human being and finding them attractive, right? Right, we start looking. Oh, that's a person, you know, and right. There's a generally speaking, you could you you could say in the system there, you know, and for survival and reproduction, there would be. As a female human, you would look at people and be more attracted to men, to male bodies and male faces. And as a man, you'd be more attractive to women and female bodies and female faces because there's a cert, there's a key, there's, there's a pattern that you, pre, that you, again, what is going on here? You know, you, there's a pattern that you're presenting to the system that you've started to perceive other people and then you're plugged into the system using a key, right? You're using a, um, <clears throat> again, there's lack, lacking. There's a particular pattern that you send out, and then you receive this flood of meaning from the larger system. But clearly we see that there's men that are attracted to men, women that are attracted to women, 
that for some reason the key develops, uh, you know, as the, the uh, as a different key to what would right <clears throat> that what the original system may have been intended, and I think that's a the strong clue. That's a very strong, super strong aesthetic uh, thing where you're. When I talk about the meaning being overlaid, right? If you look at a human body, they're all kind of very similar, right? But this this meaning overlaid of attraction, just like the meaning is overlaid of chair, <laughs> again, an overlay of meaning is not the is not a precise term, but we're lacking those terms in this language, right? Is very intense uh, aesthetic experience, right? That seems to be, <clears throat> you know, inherent. So the my idea is that you're there's a much larger system, a huge database of um, meanings that are associated with sensations and feelings, right? That uh, we gain access to through keys, right? We need to present a key to the system, then it'll deliver to us the meaning. I think another thing is 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 facial recognition, right? The idea that the incredibly subtle differences of human faces, how we can recognize people, right? Um, even though every human face is essentially the same, those subtle measurements of the distance between the eyes and the nose and the mouth, you're able to recognize someone instantly, right? That's another thing. The person's face is a key that you're presenting to the system and then you're overlaying a certain meaning to it. It's a recognition, right? In all ways, I'm trying to describe something that there are no linguistic tools to describe. So <clears throat> when we get to art, so this is there's this system where presenting keys to this essentially outside system, which is a, you could say is a supercharged human brain. It's a, it's a human brain times a billion or more right? This enormous aesthetic perceptual matrix out there that you present a key to in terms of your set, your senses and your local brain's, <clears throat> uh, you know, attempts to understand the, the, so it's almost like your brain does the beginning work and then, right, your brain is just creating the key by doing its thing of matching a pattern presenting the key to the system and then the, then this flood of inf of meaning comes back from it right so a system like that people notice that there are certain things that are not related to survival or biology such as the shape of like walls and buildings around you that right that key so when i was sitting there at that gas station and looking around the key of those perceptions presented to the system came back with something unexpected. This this aesthetic sensation that was pleasing, mysterious, and kind of new and different, right? So it's sort of like, in a way, these things were all designed by people, by architects and right, landscape designers and everything else to be aesthetically pleasing. So the particular a combination thereof, right, could actually produce, you know, more than was intended, right? So the idea of a a strip mall walkway or a, a dead mall, right, 
it could it could access portions of the perceptual matrix that are unexpected, right? That these keys could unexpectedly unlock aspects of the perceptual matrix that are um, valuable experiences that are not necessarily 100% one-to-one related to what you're perceiving, right? So with this in mind, right, artists probably at a more instinctual level rather than understanding this, right, why don't we hack this system, right? We understand that each of us has this amazing ability to perceive beauty and meaning and this indescribable aesthetic sensations that are pleasing, pleasing uh, sensations of uh, perception, pleasing perceptual sensations. Um, art can hack into that, right? With the awareness that people, if everyone is connected essentially to the same system, but everyone has different keys to get into the system, you see what I'm saying? That, that, right, each person's experience is slightly different, but we're all plugging into the same system. That art provides new keys, right? The art is just a an entry code that unlocks a, 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 a flood of sensations from this system. And that when we think of, uh, uh, you know, sort of representational art, it's just a drawing of a chair, you know? Well, great, that's a chair. But if you could say there's subtle aspects of the way it's drawn or painted or sculpted that in a way that's not understood perhaps will unlock aesthetic experiences in the matrix in unexpected ways. And it is a delight and a joy to experience those sensations, right? That can be what we talk about art. It's a, it, it is a hacking of the system. It is taking advantage of the system in ways that... Um, because it does seem, doesn't it seem that the system that we're that we're plugged into is overkill if we're just meant to be biological entities that are just surviving? The subtleties of beauty and sensation are so extreme that, um, you know, and it's mysterious, but it, it is a great source of pleasure and satisfaction, right? Aesthetics. That art is hacking the system and providing an opening up providing you keys to portions of that perceptual matrix that you didn't have access to before, right? And I think that perhaps as a defense of some of the conceptual art or modern art that, that I've been criticizing in past sessions on Central about art, that if these can be considered keys, the key is what matters, not the uh, uh, the quality of the artifice, the quality of the visual it's the key that matters, right? That I think could be considered. So that's sort of the elephant in, in the room is that art is providing keys into this per perceptual matrix, but it, we don't really understand. I'm, I'm trying this, this whole time. I've been trying to put this whole thing into words that we have access to this amazing thing, right? But we need the keys to get more out of it, right? <clears throat> and then, right? So I think. I think I've expressed that idea. So anyway, then the idea is that this is not just an accidental creation. The perceptual matrix, as I said, the combined human experience of billions of people 
creating this huge, complex uh, matrix of meaning that we have keys to plug into to receive from, that it was not, uh, did not come about through a, a, you know, a process of interconnected humans, but that that matrix itself was built by an intelligent designer, right? That matrix was um, designed for the express purpose of our aesthetic experience, right? That we here are, uh, that there's this massive construct of interconnected and complex meanings and interpretations and feelings and sensations, right? That was built, purpose-built, as a system so that individual users could access a portion of it through keys, right? And it would be um, a... (laughs) Again, this is where language fails me. It's a system by which the perceptual matrix, as it relates to an individual human, each individual human's different keys, perhaps inborn different keys, and then learned keys and perceived keys into that system provides a satisfying and meaningful experience, right? So that the whole thing is purpose-built. So art is an attempt to get at deeper levels of this thing that was built by someone or something else. You see what I'm saying? (coughs) So... Hopefully, I I don't know. I, I I just I feel this is a super important issue and difficult to talk about. But anyway, that was me talking about art. <laughs> Back to you, PQ. Oh, I I I, I like a lot of this idea. The overlay of meaning concept has a lot of value. Uh, I I I am feeling that very. I, I just in the way you laid it all I, and I didn't dare interrupt I felt like you were here talking to me and I didn't want to interrupt your train of thought or my train or, or anybody else's for that matter uh, you put that together really well and that uh, that's an interesting posited theory I mean our brain works in certain ways and the last I read they couldn't find any localized place where we store memories. So yes, this idea of keys, and when you have the keys, you can access this family of information, the chair, and many chairs, and eventually, you know, an armchair, a recliner, a kitchen chair, a folding chair, the, the world of chair. You know, there are people whose entire lives revolve around chairs. And then there are chairmen and boards and chairmen of the boards. All these things. Um, Yep, this was not what I expected, but I think it was better. Uh, uh, Dave, uh, that was wonderful. Frank, uh, thanks so much. This, this, This was another, and I hardly had to do anything, which makes it even more, well, I don't know. I've been doing less and less, but I think you're getting more value 
somehow. Think about that a minute. While I uh, now shift the topic to, yes, there he is again, trying that, that PQ River, trying to get you to do the podcasting for him. That's right. This is your opportunity once again. And I have another amazing topic. I mean, we've kind of touched on this in the past, but it's one of those topics that keep giving time after time. Next week on this here program, the Overnightscape Central, we're going to talk about terrible TV and movies. And or uh, this was inspired by, I, I will confess, uh, having seen nothing but trouble uh, from 1991 um, in the last week. Uh, oh boy, it, it just got my head spinning as to this topic. So it's going to be terrible TV and movies and the deadline for your inclusion in said project is next Tuesday the 20th. Is, is it the tw- No, 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 no. It's the 13th of September, 2022. I mean, you can send it in any time, and we will use it on the uh, following Overnightscape Central. But uh, it's, it's, it, that's the deadline to make it for sure. And you can probably make even sl- slip into Wednesday, because that seems to be when I'm uh, doing the shows. But the email address for you to send uh, audio files, uh, something uh, typed out, and I will read it on your behalf, uh, to the email address is kpqr.torc at gmail.com. I say that once more. kpqr.torc at gmail.com. Mm-hmm. And uh, th- th- you're in. And be part of the giant onsug, which I urge you to fall into. And uh, you might want to start with some of Dave's sermons. Or, I mean, if you're really feeling prolific, you can start with the very first episode of The Overnightscape. And uh, just work your way forward slowly, gradually. And uh, you'll catch up eventually, inevitably, maybe depending how much you listen to. But it, it is. It, it, it's a mind-bendingly large uh, collection. And there's the book, uh, and then there's the radio station in a book that dig. Dig the stuff and dig deep, because there is nothing like the Overnightscape. ONSUG.com, in case you've uh, picked this up elsewhere and want to check it out uh that's where you go and uh with that thanks for being here listening and uh till the next time we meet let's set the controls for the heart of the fun